Glad to be back with you. We missed worshiping with our faith family last Lord's Day. Revelation 20. This is the first time I can remember having written a sermon, come to the conclusion of it, and then prayed, Lord, now would be a good time to come back. But he has chosen to wait another day. So with joy and excitement, I want to show you what I think Revelation 20 has for us here at the landing. Before I do that, I want to fully acknowledge the many different views that define or try to interpret Revelation 20. And I want you to know where I am. Not because you have to be where I am. In fact, they're within orthodoxy and welcome here at the landing are several different views. I'm sure several different views are represented and we're enjoying our unity because of them and not harmed by them. I actually am migrating from one view toward another, and I want to give you the questions that I was asking, especially in the last several months as I've been reading through and studying the book of Revelation, why I'm coming to the view that I'm coming to. I'll, I'll offer you these questions not because I want to sway you necessarily in my direction. I'm not sure my direction is set yet, but because by these questions we can dig into the Word of God more deeply. My aim is to uphold the value, the power, the singular authority of the Word of God in our hearts more so than it already may be, and to be as careful and as humble and as precise with God's Word as I am able. All that for the sake of declaring what I know to be or believe to be the truth in love for the honor and glory of Christ, for the salvation of sinners, for the advance of the church, and for the destruction of His enemy, especially the devil. I see the book of Revelation, you've heard me say this many times, but this is a, a fresh image for me. I see the book of Revelation as a tapestry, a living tapestry. It's like daytime and you're looking at the northern lights and there's this undulating glowing, even during the, the bright noonday sun, which is far brighter than the, than the noonday sun. And it's images of all manner of amazing sights like dragons and horses and swords, and, and, and fire, and, and pits of abyss, and uh, a beast with a, a, a Babylonish harlot riding on the beast, and, and she holds a leash in her hand, and there's a false prophet at the other end of that leash whom she controls. And, and, and there's a, a, a dragon in the background, but very, very active. And, and then there's brighter than all the rest in all these living vignettes and dramatic images that I see in the sky, as it were, a bridegroom whose brightness is brighter than even the brightness of all the tapestry of Revelation. And with him is a bride whose beauty is borrowed from her bridegroom, and together they're so bright we can't even look at them. They're so beautiful. It's like going to a wedding and you, you look at the moment for the kiss and you say, it's just so intimate and so beautiful, I can't even bear to look. You ever had that feeling, or is that just me? The entire main point of the book of Revelation in my effort is this. Repent and trust in Jesus Christ, for by His shed blood and conquering life, 
He is worthy to rule over heaven and earth. That's the main point. Anything else that gets you more excited than that is confusion. I understand specifically Revelation chapter 20, the verses Andrew just read, to be an overture, like a, like a symphonic overture, gathering themes from chapters 12 through 19 and summarizing them in summary, musical, compact format, Revelation 20, the whole chapter. Revelation 12 through 19, you remember, was when Satan was cast down, and it's stunning how very similar, in fact, it's worth a reflection, and and I'm not going to take the time to do this, but it's worth a reflection to look at chapter 12, 1 through 7, and to look at chapter 20, 1 through 7, and to see how almost identical they are. The vocabulary is almost the same. It's almost like they form a a front and back, an envelope, a beginning and an end, and that everything between 12 and 20, chapters 12 through 19, is a fuller unpacking or unfolding of what's summarized at the beginning, beginning in chapter 12 and at the end in chapter 20. In fact, that wouldn't at all be surprising because that's exactly the way apocalyptic literature reads in many other places in the Bible, and it's also the way John writes elsewhere. So it's so very expected to see John say, you know, Satan was cast down to the earth in chapter 12 by fighting with an angel, and he's given the exact same names and the exact same events happen, and then there's the same thing in chapter 20, only with fuller detail and with fuller outcome. We'll look at both the outcome in chapter 20 today and next Lord's Day. It's my understanding, though I know this isn't shared by all, in fact it wasn't shared by me just months ago, that this chapter describes exactly how the Lord has dealt with Satan between Christ's two comings. Christ's first coming, death, resurrection, and ascension. Christ's second coming to defeat sin, evil, and the devil, and to establish the new heavens and the new earth and reign as king forever. That's my understanding. Not everyone's, but it's mine. Here's why. There are two views, one that I've held now, don't hold as firmly anymore. In fact, I find it many of the questions that I had while holding it being answered by a second view. I'll name them. pre Millennialism is where I've been for most of my Christian life, all of it, really. Sees Christ coming back before the millennium. He comes back, and then what he does is begins a thousand-year reign. Sometimes it's just an extended full period of time, but others see it as an exact thousand years. That's the millennium. It's talked about here and only here in the Bible in Revelation 20. The view I'm moving toward, and that just seems to fit so much better, and you'll see why in a moment, is that actually this full period of time called the thousand years or millennium is actually the time between Christ's two comings, especially because the devil is treated very clearly and very specifically with great detail here in Revelation 20. It looks exactly like what the rest of the New Testament says, how the devil's been treated in the time between Christ's coming. Here are some of the questions that I have asked that point me in this present millennium direction. The main feature in the Bible that causes 
pre-millennialists to see an order, a chronological sequence of time. Revelation 19 ends, Jesus throws beast and false prophet into the lake of fire. Final battle is over, and then the devil is bound. It seems like one happens after the other. The main reason is because there are temporal words in the verses. For instance, look at chapter 20, verse 1 with me. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven. Or you could look further to verse 4. Then I saw thrones and seated on them. And you can even look down further at the verse 10. The devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the prophet were. The assumption can be we're already thrown from the previous chapter. In fact, some versions actually explicitly say that. Here's what's interesting. None of those thens are in the Bible. It's just the word and. And when I saw that, I realized this chapter 20 could very easily be not chronologically sequential to chapter 19, but restating the whole picture, an overture, a summary of the whole thing. And all of a sudden, things began to fall into place more, more easily. I shouldn't say perfectly, but more easily. There's lots of questions with every view. Every view has to be held humbly. The second observation is, at the end of chapter 19, this is the second question, at the end of chapter 19, we have this deceiving of the nations, we have this battle, it's called the final battle, it's the battle, referred to very explicitly as the battle at the end of chapter 19, we saw this two weeks ago. Christ wins, he defeats his enemies and all the nations that were gathered against him, all that comes to its conclusion at chapter 19. They've all, all the nations have been deceived. They've already been defeated. They're out of existence now. Christ has won. And then chapter 20 says, the devil is going to be bound so he won't deceive the nations anymore. And I'm asking myself, what nations? There are no nations left. If it's chronologically sequential, the nations are already taken care of and deceived and defeated at the end of 19? That's the second question. Here's a third question. How could it be at the end of this thousand-year millennium that seems to be described here in chapter 20 as coming after Christ returns, how could it be that evil persons get into that millennium? How could evil get into the millennium? The millennium is seen as a time of peace and a time of blessing, a time when Christ rules bodily on the earth, and in fact, there's no room for evil or sin anymore, and yet, at the end of this millennium, you can read down in chapter 20, Satan will be released, and verse 8 says, he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle, their numbers like the sand of the sea. They marched up, verse 9, over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. So my question is, who are all those people who were deceived after the final deceiving? Who let sin into the millennium? Who let evil into the millennium? How did evil get in there? It's a massive problem. 
Another question. I noticed that the background of the battle, the vocabulary used, and the verses alluded to in chapter 19, as well as this battle I just read for you in chapter 27 to 10, is both the same Old Testament passage, Ezekiel 38 and 39. In fact, Gog and Magog are explicitly mentioned from there. They, they form the battle of, the background of both battles, suggesting rather that this might not be a final battle and then another final battle, making the first battle not the final battle, but rather the one final battle from two perspectives. At least it's possible. I have several other questions, and I'm not going to mention them any further. They're in my manuscript if you'd like them. You can get my manuscript after we edit it and publish it. It'll be available for you. What I do want to be quick to say is this. Inside orthodoxy, inside Christian churches like ours, and every healthy Christian church that believes Christ is coming back bodily, and that He's coming back to redeem and gather His church and to defeat all His enemies, sin, evil, and the devil, that's unshakably and undoubtedly and undebatably true. We stand for that. In fact, we'll die for that. Therefore, we'll live for that. The timing of it, however, is not as clear. It's simply not. All the best proponents and scholars and and proclaimers of the various views that you may hold or I hold or that we might migrate to and from, all the best teachers from this age and previous ages all teach with a certain humility saying, I'm learning, I'm growing, my view has strengths to it and has struggles to it. So let me be abundantly clear, all orthodox views are welcome here. All views that love the sovereignty of Christ and His bodily return and His rule on the earth forever and ever and His gathering of His church to Himself in salvation and joy as the bridegroom and His defeat of His enemies, all views which celebrate such realities are welcome here. If you have a view that you would like to commend to me, I'm all ears. If you have other questions for this idea that maybe we're in this time called the millennium right now, the present millennium view, I welcome those as well. My allegiance isn't to a view. My allegiance isn't to a camp. My allegiance isn't to any mere man, but to the God-man, Jesus Christ and His Word. So I'm eager, and I hope you are too, to grow and to learn. John, the writer of the apocalyptic, the book of Revelation, inspired by the Holy Spirit and instructed by the Spirit to give us exactly what we have here in Revelation 20, would say, tut, tut, tut. Don't be spending time on what I didn't write for you. Don't be too caught up in information I didn't give you. The moment we start dividing and getting so excited about the chronology of how we think think things will unfold is the moment we grieve our Lord who said of Himself, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. What would John say we should focus on? Well, look with me to the glories and the blessings that are available for us here in the 
verses that Andrew read, and I'm going to continue because I saw three, and I like this package of three. I'm going to continue right through verse 10. Here's the blessings I want you to go away from this message receiving. First, blessing number one, the dragon is bound so the nations will be one. The dragon is bound so the nations will be one. Blessing number two, the first resurrection shields us from the second death, so get the first resurrection. Blessing number three, Satan released to deceive will lose the final battle. Satan released to deceive will lose the final battle. Let's look at those three blessings before our time is done. Look at verses one through three. Then I saw an angel, remember the then isn't there, and I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now, whether this binding happens when Christ comes back or it's already happened at the cross, the point is Satan is bound, not just in the future, though that might mean what this says is it's going to come when Christ comes back. That's the view I've held most of my life, and many of you do. It's a great view. It's got lots to support it. But that's not what I'm referring to. I think it might be that this binding, this this very powerful word bind or bound in verse 2, is the exact same word, and this is huge, that Jesus said of his work on the cross when he bound Satan. This was like a huge light bulb going off for me. Listen to Matthew 12, 29. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. That word binds is very strong, desmos. It means lay hold of and control, like in a prison. John uses that to describe what the angel does of the devil in uh, Revelation 20, verse 2. Jesus says, that's what I did for the strong man, the devil, at the cross. He goes on in John 12, Jesus does, in another place and says something even stronger. The, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So the writer of Hebrews summarizes these in his sermon to the Hebrews in chapter 2. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Christ himself, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Do you know what that means? It means the devil is alive, he's a personal and real being, but he's bound right now, no matter how you view the future. The cross did it. You can step back with me, can't you? And you can think of all the horrible deceptions that the devil did in the Old Testament before the cross. Oh, the horrible things he did to Job. Oh, the way he got snuck into that garden and started talking to Eve. Oh, my goodness. And the way he got those nations just to hate the guts of the Israelites and war against them constantly. The devil was running roughshod over the earth until Christ came. When Christ came, lived a holy life, resisted the temptation of the devil. Does, Does it ever shock you that in Matthew 4... The Spirit led Jesus out into the wilderness to have a temptation appointment with the devil? I mean, that just shocks me. 
But it was all, of course, to show exactly what we're seeing here, that prior to the cross, the devil was deceiving the nations. But then after the cross, Jesus says, now he's cast down. Now the ruler of the world is done. Now I have bound him. He's the strong man, so I can go plunder the goods of souls. And the writer of Hebrews makes it most explicit. Through my death, Jesus says, I destroy the one who has the power of death. I hope that therefore you read Revelation 20 and you hear these first three verses say, he no longer is able to deceive the nations. And and while it might not be the case that this is referring to the same binding that happened at the cross, still what happened at the cross is true. And therefore, you and I should go out with authority, with triumph, with boldness. We should go to the nations because they're waiting to believe on our testimony. The devil can't make them deny Christ anymore. Oh, they can reject Christ. And yes, the devil might have some kind of temptation to do it, but he doesn't have near the power on them that he once had, for his power has been curtailed. He can accuse, he can lie, he can put all kinds of horrible falsehoods and deceptions in place, but he does not have the power over the nations to deceive them, to gather and make war against God as he did in days before the cross. And as we see him doing in Revelation 19 at the end, we'll see him doing it again at the end of 20. It's a stunning reality. It's a stunning blessing. Jesus promised, didn't he? And this, this gospel of the kingdom, this gospel of Christ's kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. How does he know the gospel is going to go all, all the way to the ends of the earth? Because he's bound the devil, and the devil can't stop the plan. This ought to make you say, To become a missionary, a global emissary of the gospel is the most triumphant, hopeful, powerful, honorable, joyful calling that there could ever be. We as a church should constantly say, we have only good reason to stay where we are, to gather where we are, to build where we are, if we know that it will further advance the cause of spreading the gospel of Christ around the world while Satan is bound. You don't build additions to this building, that direction and that direction, costing costing millions of dollars, unless you believe that these expansions of this building and the expansion and strength of this congregation is going to further increase the people who go out for the sake of the name to win the the nations for Christ. The world does not need a church just to get bigger. The world needs to see Christians lit up by the plan of Christ that cannot fail. And they will go to the ends of the earth saying, I come bearing news of the King of kings and Lord of lords, and there's no one to stop you from believing in salvation through His name for your soul. What a blessing. What a blessing. Oh, the blessing of Satan's binding at the cross and possibly again in the future. So that means you can live free of the devil's fear. You know that sense of self-loathing that you battle with? You know what it is. That sense of self-loathing that you battle with? That's the devil lying to you. You don't have to listen to it anymore. It's been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. That thing that keeps you from sharing your faith, from taking risks, from going out to the ends of the earth, 
that thing that makes you feel so small compared to what you envisioned your life being when you graduated. That's the lie of the enemy. And he has no power to make you believe it. His only power is to utter it. You can reject it outright. Reject by the perfect love of God which which casts out all fear, this fear of the devil, and replace it with holy, godly, obedience-fueling fear of God. Go to the nations. The way has been made clear. They are waiting to believe on Christ because you come. Second blessing. Look at verses 4 through 6. The first resurrection shields from the second death. So get the first resurrection. (laughs) Then I saw thrones seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. So John sees this vision of the angel binding Satan. And then he sees up in heaven souls gathered around the, the throne and they're worshiping. And they have authority to judge themselves. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. So he's talking about all believers gathered in heaven around the throne. We've seen this vision many times in Revelation already. And it says they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Some say that coming to life is a future physical resurrection. But look what that coming to life means. Verse 5, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection, this coming to life at the, in verse 4. Look at what the first coming to life means. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Why? What is this first resurrection that makes such blessing? The book of Revelation doesn't toss the word blessed around very often, only seven times. This is one of the seven. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Why? Over such, the second death has no power. Oh, now we get what the first resurrection is. The first resurrection is Christ's resurrection and my being in it with him by faith. The first resurrection is Christ's resurrection, and I'm a believer by faith. That's why the second death has no power over me. Rather, it makes me a priest of God and of Christ, and I will reign with Him for that full thousand years. Whether that's now, until He returns, and then we reign together in the new heavens and the new earth, or whether it's that thousand-year millennium that comes after He arrives to earth. Both are pretty glorious. John sees believers gathered around and worshiping under the glory of God in Christ, and they have and share His authority to reign with Him, just as the rest of the New Testament promises that we will be raised with Christ Buried with him in a baptism like his, raised to new life in a resurrection like his, Paul says in Romans 6. And it pictures that those who have died trusting in the Lord, even if they died suffering for their faith, martyrs or having been killed for their faith, beheaded as it were, they are in fact ruling and reigning as priests with the Lord and the second death has no power over them. In other words, they'll never be in the lake of fire. They'll never endure the suffering of the lake of fire. That's what the second death is. They'll never endure the condemnation that comes from having to die twice. Every one of us has to die once. But only the unbeliever who has rejected Christ, taken upon themselves the mark of the beast, that person not only has to die once, they have to die twice. And even that makes something horrible sound too easy.
John chapter 5, 27 through 29 is Jesus' words, which seem to confirm this so plainly. And God has given to him, Christ, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, and those who have gone, done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. It sounds so very similar to Revelation 20, verse 6. And Colossians 3 and many other passages say, If you then have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. The Bible's doctrine, undeniable throughout the whole Scripture, clear as can be, is that if you're a believer, you are raised with Christ. Yes, you're dwelling physically here, but you're also raised and seated with Christ and you're reigning with Him now. And John saw in his vision a picture of you and himself in that very place. Such a blessing that if you are enjoying this resurrection life, the first resurrection by faith in Jesus Christ, you've got no second death coming for you. This maybe is the most important question any person could answer as they read the Bible. Am I going to go through just the first death like all of us, or do I have the second death awaiting me as well? If you don't know Jesus Christ, then this message right now is, is a specific pin to pin right in your life as a spot and a day and an hour and a moment when you are invited to trust in Jesus Christ for the first time and believe in Him. Turn from sin. Turn from the things of the world and from the things of the devil and follow and love and serve Jesus Christ. Trust in Him. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Maybe you're going to do that right now in your heart even as you hear me speak. Maybe as the Bible is open in front of you, you're going to read these wonderful verses of verse, words of verse 6. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection and say, Lord, I want to share in the first resurrection. I remember when I trusted in Christ when I was six years old, right next to my Sunday school teacher in Fallen, Wisconsin. Ella Johnson was her name. I think everybody in Fallen, Wisconsin was named Johnson. And she taught me to pray and led me to pray to trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of my sins and to know that I would be with Him forever in heaven. And I was thrilled in that dusty little back room. <clears throat> but reading this verse applies the blessing of knowing Christ and that I will not endure the second death more deeply and more sweetly and more richly than I could have ever imagined. And my little mind can't possibly imagine the glories that await you and me in the new heavens and the new earth. Third blessing. Let's go further into the verses not yet read, 7 through 10. And when the thousand years were ended, Satan will be released from his prison. They come out to deceive the nations that are the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their numbers like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth. Surrounded the camp of the saints and beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were. They will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. Whether the thousand years are happening now, and this happens all when Christ returns, or they begin when Christ returns, and at the very end of that thousand years, Satan is released. He gathers the nations, whatever nations there are, deceives them, starts a whole other battle. 
Either way, in the end, Satan gets thrown into the lake of fire. (laughs) Satan gets thrown into the lake of fire. The one person who wants to destroy your life, the one person who hates you, the one person who hates Christ, the one person, the one being who hates all that God is and all that God has said, all of his glory, he hates all nature, he hates the church, he hates you and everything about you, the one person who stands in direct enmity and opposition to you, he's going to cook in the lake of fire forever and ever. And, there's, and, and you're going to look close and you're going to rejoice with all of heaven over Satan and all his demons who had done all the deceiving and all the persons who had, had fallen dupe into their sway. They will all burn forever in the lake of fire and all heaven, as we've saw, seen in chapters 18 and 19, will rejoice over it. And that image is probably morally too big and daunting and overwhelming for you and I to conceive It is so clear in the Bible. It is stunningly, breathtakingly bracing from a moral perspective. We'll rejoice over all the enemies of God as they burn forever in the lake of fire. Never being consumed. Never running out of fuel never finding the release of final death, just living it every day forever. Fulfills Isaiah 66. For behold, the Lord will come in fire and His chariots like the whirlwind to render His anger in fury and His rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by His sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. Paul said the same thing to the Thessalonians, and to grant relief to you, Thessalonians, who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Satan wanted to replace God. He wanted to be God. Satan puts all kinds of ideas and thoughts into the eyes eyes and hearts and minds and bodies of human beings, even believers. But believers have the power to resist them. Unbelievers do not. The Spirit of the living God who dwells within believers gives us the power to say, I'm not ignorant of your design, Satan. Greater is he that's in me than you that's in the world. I just simply submit myself to the Lord and Satan, you must flee from me. And many other key passages. You've been destroyed. You're bound I read my Bible and I believe it with all my heart. So confess anything right now. Confess anything that you know is of the enemy and that you don't want to be actively doing when God in Christ comes back. Whatever Christ would be grieved over to find you thinking, feeling, or doing, repent and put that away in your life right now. So that whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, you do all to the glory of God so that whatever you do, Christ comes back and He will find you faithful. What a blessing to think that our final enemy is going to be in the lake of fire forever and ever with his beast and his false prophet, his demons and all who follow him. What a joy to think that there will be a day when there'll be no more temptation. And I won't have, by being glorified in my new body, the capacity to sin anymore. And I will not look into my Savior's face 
and see one shred of disappointment or disapproval in his eyes. Not one. This is a gospel worth telling to the nations and reminding to ourselves often. The devil is bound, so go to the nations with the gospel. You are secure in Christ, untouchable by the second death. Satan dies in the end, and you will live forever with Christ who reigns. I have advocated for my view, in part. There's lots more in the manuscript I haven't given you. As I love God and the truth and you as my faith family, I cannot in good conscience hold back what I believe to be the best thing for you. So I have offered it, knowing it's not all the view you may hold. But I ask you not to trust in me, but in Christ whose word is infallible. We both must admit that the glories of Christ's coming exceed all of our views, no matter how well-crafted they are. His love for His worldwide church, His defeat of evil, sin, and the devil are total. His reign is infinite, but the details we confess we see darkly. So Spurgeon, a preacher in London 180 years ago or so, said this, We are looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Even so, come Lord Jesus is the desire of every instructed saint. I shall not go into any details about when He will come. I will not espouse the cause of the premillennial or the postmillennial. Not that either. It will suffice me just now to observe that the Redeemer's coming is the desire of the entire church. Let's pray. So that's what we're asking, Jesus. Not that you answer our every question. You don't owe us that. You didn't ever promise that. You said that will come in eternity. What we desire is what you've instructed us to desire, and that is for your return. Come, Lord Jesus. You help, you help me through this message. I still want you to come. There's so many people that I want to see saved. Friends and family and enemies. Nations. There's so many places where the touch of your compassion and power is needed so desperately. But I, I'm not trusting in my heart's longings ability to be rightly ordered. I'm trusting in your word that says, come Lord Jesus. At the perfect hour, in the perfect way, at the perfect time, that the Father alone knows and you happily will carry out. Come, Lord Jesus. Gather your church. Defeat your enemy, the devil, and all who join him. And sit on the throne of David and rule over your new heavens and new earth. Lord, we love you and we thank you for all that you've shown us in your word and even the question marks that you've left for us to continue to discover. Even these remind us of our need of you. Go with us now into our response to your word as we sing and into the meal to follow and into the rest of this Lord's day and the days ahead. And bless us richly as a faith family as we seek to live out the very heart of revelation. Come, Lord Jesus. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Stand and sing, would you, in response?